0: So it's incredibly powerful to just listen to your inner voice and listen to what is exciting you and to go with it. That's what I would tell
1: myself. Hi, I'm Matt McKee. I created Cherry Bomb and Sweet Blast series of limited edition photos with a mission to start conversations in the room about the bigger topics of food, art, and sustainability. This podcast is the companion piece to that project where I get to share with you some of the discussions that Sweet Blast has inspired. Today, I'm talking with Renee Ricciardi. She's a Boston-based artist and beekeeper. I was introduced to her after someone saw my Honeydew print at an art show. You can see Honeydew at theartofmattmckee.com. Renee, thank you so much for joining me today.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: I'm really excited about this. I took the opportunity to look through some of your work online recently. And there's so many topics we can go down the rabbit hole and explore. Your practice as a photographer and as an artist covers sustainability, globalization, mindfulness, trust, and ambition. That's a lot. Let's start with your origin story. When did you know you were an artist? I would
0: love to make things as a kid. I would love to work with my hands, creating things, tinkering around. But I didn't know it was quote unquote art until much later, because when I think of art, I think of putting paint on a canvas. And as a kid, that's what art was to me, because that's how it was presented to me in school. And actually at my grandparents' home, big Italian family, um, after dinner, I would sneak upstairs, tiptoe up to the attic and just look at all of my grandparents, their collection of books. And so many books were these Renaissance paintings and travel books. And I just remember going up there and the smell of the antique books and looking through them and thinking, wow, this is so incredible and so amazing. And it definitely inspired this wonder lust inside of me. Like, I want to go, I want to travel, I want to see the world. What is so amazing about this art that's drawing me to it? Mm. Botticelli, all of these Italian masters. So, I mean, they really influenced me at a, at a young age, mm-hmm. um, but it wasn't until much older that I realized... Art is so much more than even what we think it is. Even now, today, after graduating from art school, I'm I'm still looking at work and thinking, wow, this is art too. Like, it's all around us. It's Mm -hmm. the rhythm inside of us that's one of the sparks of life. I mean, it's almost unavoidable. I'm always interested in the conversation of, is this art? Does this count? And it's like, you can't even ask that question because what is not art, I think, is more of a poignant question. So...
1: I think you summed up my own philosophy fairly well. <laughs> We've evolved to be creative problem solvers, and that takes intuitive leaps. And the intuition, those leaps, those solutions, they're not just science. They're more art than they are science and engineering. They are creative. We, we are all creative.
0: Oh, absolutely. And actually, I remember being in the West Coast and I was talking to some engineers in San Francisco. And I was like, art and science and engineers, we're all making the same thing. And they just were not, (laughs) they were just not having that conversation. They were not artists. I was not one of them. Like there is a strict division, but I just see so many parallels between Mm -hmm. art and science. And I would just love to blur that line and kind of say like, look, art influences so much science influences and inspires so much. There's so much in the creation of things that tells a story and that, you know, we can learn from. So yeah, yeah, I I am so inspired by nature and through science and just by going outside and looking at things, how things are made, how they're created, I draw so much inspiration from that. So photography for me is a tool to tell a story. I I consider myself a storyteller. Um, I love the way that photography captures light and can, you know, really tell a story of place and a person. Um, and so I love that element of it, but I absolutely have dabbled around and, um, I've done some performance work. Um, I've done some sculptural work. In fact, I have a large scale, um, public art project that is in the works that is kind of under wraps right now, but, um, As soon as I can start talking about it, I will
1: (laughs) Mm, I have to get you back
0: for the Earth is an Island project. That was a performance for me to walk the entire circumference of Malta because that that's such an integral part of the end product. Um, So it kind of was this solo trek around an island and kind of proving this idea of limitations and boundaries.
1: I was going to bring up uh, the Earth is an Island project in a little bit, but since you brought that up, let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, This is a fairly recent project.
0: Yeah. So it was before coronavirus, just before COVID happened. I had been traveling for nine months that year. Wow. I started in India and I got my yoga teacher certification there, which blew my mind that I was capable of that. Then moved up north to Nepal and did some trekking there. I'm not an athletic person. I didn't grow up being athletic or doing these kinds of things. This is my first time trekking. So I did the Everest Base Camp trek, my first trek ever.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: And then I went to Europe after that. And many years ago, I had this idea, like, how long would it take to walk around Sicily?
1: Wow!
0: (laughs) I love Sicily. I've been there a few times and my family from there. And the answer is several months, (laughs) months and months and months. At my pace, stopping to take pictures all the time, it would take forever. I became kind of obsessed with islands and this concept of walking around them and, you know, this idea of like an endurance performative project walking around a place. And Malta felt like the right place for me. And then after this nine month trip around the world, I mean, I realized like, okay, if I can do Mount Everest, if I can do this intense yoga teacher training, if I can do the meditation, I can absolutely walk around this island. It was such an ambitious project. I was terrified out of my mind. I didn't know anyone in Malta. It was a country that I had never been to.
1: Were you there by yourself?
0: I was there by myself. Yeah.
1: Oh my gosh. Going into it, did you have an initial idea of what Earth as an Island as a project was going to be?
0: I mean, I knew I would be walking around. I had no idea what I would find. I did not know what I would encounter. I did not know what the coastline would really look like or feel like. I didn't know what the terrain would even be. I didn't know people there. I didn't know the culture. Um, I did not know what to expect at all. And I just knew it would be interesting. I knew that I was extremely driven inside, that it felt like the power it took to not do the project was more painful than the fear (laughs) of doing the project. And so I had to throw myself into it completely because it was like, if I don't do it, like I I can't.
1: (laughs) Okay. So this was an exploration of what exactly?
0: I consider Earth as an island for me was an exploration of what boundaries are, both mental as well as physical. Um, So the concept of the project itself is about how islands are sort of this finite amount of space. And I'm comparing that finite amount of space and land to Earth. Right. We have this planet and Earth is an island. It's on its own. I mean, if we mess it up, we only have one Earth. (laughs) It's really like Mm -hmm. Earth, because there's so many groups of people there. Malta was conquered by so many different people. So the Arabs, the Carthaginians, the Normans, the Italians, Napoleon conquered it, the Knights, so many different ethnicities there, that it kind of is like Earth in that way that there's so many Mm -hmm. cultures. And It has a long history. So I'm kind of making this comparison between islands and Earth and what that means to have just a finite amount of space. The world is big, but it's also really small. And so what that means is working together to solve complex problems and, you know, being like honeybees as we work together to prevent terrible things from happening, basically.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I dig it. I dig it. Along the way, I find for any of my projects, it's half technical, it's half the intuitive, creative side of things. But there's always tangents that take place, always little things that are unexpected that cropped up. What happened on your trips around Malta that surprised you?
0: I was very surprised by the generosity of strangers. I was there on my own. I emailed people just saying, hey, I'm this artist and I'm coming here. I'm looking for places to stay. And even just advertising saying like, Hey, I'll be walking this stretch of land and I'm this artist. I'm looking for locals who would want to walk with me. I found people who um, were interested in walking with me, um, people who were very willing to host me for free to stay with them for, for days on end. They thought the project was really powerful and they wanted to do what they could to help. They really believed in the project. People who did not know me were fascinated by the project. They gave me food. They gave me shelter, places to stay. There was a a husband and wife couple who gave me their GoPro. Oh,
1: wow. I
0: was there for 16 days, 16 days of walking. I was able to find people who were willing to walk with me and to learn from me and tell me the story of the place, which was so important to me.
1: So that at the same time as they're learning from you, they're sharing with you their history and their perspective. Now that you've done this tour what is the, for lack of a better term, product that you can then share with other people about Earth is an Island?
0: So for Earth is an Island, I really consider it to be a project that needs to be on its own. Mm -hmm. So the perfect place for it would be a solo exhibition, which I haven't quite done yet with COVID and everything, Mm -hmm. but I would love to have the work in an exhibition. I did Print a couple photo books that I love. They came out really well mm-hmm. through the progression of the images and through the narrative that it tells. Mm-hmm. So I am pretty pleased about how the photo book came out.
1: Does the photo book also contain text and stories about what you were doing?
0: The only words that it contains is this poem by this famous Greek poet who is a sandal maker in Athens. And I went to his shop and met his son, but not him. Mm-hmm. He's a Greek poet named Stavros Melissinos, and he lives and works in Athens and creates shoes. And I did get the opportunity to go to his shop to meet his son because he's no longer making sandals, but he's a very well-known poet. And I came across one of his poems and I thought this really explains kind of the crux of how I Feel About Boundaries. It's not a long poem. I can read it to you. Yes, please. I am not just Cretan, Spartan, Athenian, Macedonian, all Greek. The whole of Greek in my chest I have enclosed, and whoever the Greeks divide is my ancestral duty to strike them back with the lance of eternal truth. I'm European. I'm Asian. I'm African. American, Australian, Oceanian, son of the Pole. I'm all the people sheltered under the same sky, a child of heaven and earth, man, the measure of all things. And finally, Christian or Jew, Brahmin or Buddhist, Muslim or who you owe alliance only to your own meditation. Just think of the ever pure butterfly instinct that flies in time and space in gardens without boundaries. Wow. If you think of a butterfly, they just travel around. There's no borders. There's no oh, this philosophy or that philosophy. I'm going to go here and there. And I really felt that when I was traveling in Lebanon and was at the beach all the time. And it was like, this is the Mediterranean Sea. And this is the same Mediterranean Sea in Italy. And this is the same Mediterranean Sea in Greece. And, you know, I went to all those countries. We put these labels on places and things, and it's it's just the same water that's just flowing effortlessly between places. And it doesn't matter if I'm in Europe or in the Middle East or North Africa, which also touches the Mediterranean Sea. Like it's all this interconnected space and these labels and boundaries that we make in our mind are really limiting to ourselves. So that is what Earth as is an Island is about.
1: Self-imposed borders.
0: Self-imposed borders.
1: Yeah. Wow. Oh, that's cool stuff. That is cool stuff. Definitely something to meditate on. You mentioned at one point the Bee project which is another thing that I know that you have an ongoing love affair with. And obviously with honeydew, I'm in love with bees myself. What motivated you to become a beekeeper? Because people come to it for different reasons.
0: Actually, it's funny. I remember as a kid loving bumblebees, Mm -hmm. like the big, fat, hairy bumblebees. And I remember when I found out you could keep bees, I asked my parents. We were living in the suburbs. And but I remember saying to my parents, you know, living in the city and saying, I found out People can keep bees. Can we keep bees? And my mom was goes, absolutely not. And at the same exact time, my dad was like, that would be so cool. <laughs> so I think that with my kind of my dad's, you know, being like, oh, that's amazing. It kind of like reinforced that idea. Like, OK, maybe not right now, but that's something to think about and consider in the future. Yeah, I was in college. It was winter break. And I remember just thinking about bees and just thinking, I wonder how hard that is to do. That's honestly the thought. And I just started reading about like, how do you keep bees? The more you learn about honeybees, the more questions that come and you have to learn about those and then you learn more. And even to this day, I've been beekeeping for 12 years now, more and more questions. I'm learning things constantly. There's not a day where I open up the beehive and do a full inspection where I'm not totally blown away by something that I'll find, whether it's like an interaction that I see between the bees or just something knew that I noticed. I mean, I'm constantly, constantly wow. never bored. I'm never bored with bees. They're constantly a source of inspiration. They're a source of so much of my inquisitive, curious nature.
1: Now, and you did a whole series on bees.
0: Right. In 2014, I went to Italy and photographed bees and beekeepers all over the country. I went to 14 regions of Italy And actually, Italy was the first nation in the European Union to ban the use of this pesticide that's killing the honeybees. So I really wanted to go there to kind of tell that story about what's going on there and who these people are that are creating this progressive ideology to help save the bees. Hmm. And I found it fascinating because Italy was going through a pretty bad recession at the time, Mm -hmm. and they prioritized honeybees and food. So high that they were able to pass this legislation to help save the bees. And I thought that is amazing. You know, um, joblessness was at an all time high, so many political problems, and they just prioritized nature. And I thought there is so much we can learn from that mm. to really help us change the world. So I wanted to tell that story. It wasn't necessarily as politically motivated as that, I also wanted to meet these people and photograph them in their places and tell the story of what is beekeeping in Europe like. So it was very much two sides of a coin. One was this political kind of honeybees are dying, but then there's also this gentleness between the honeybee, which is a wild creature and the beekeeper who is looking to tame or to otherwise kind of manipulate the hive and this overlapping between man and nature.
1: The two sides. Yeah. You said something on your website, actually, I was talking about the bees as wild animals. And I'm just wondering the relationship between the bee and the beekeeper, is it symbiotic?
0: In some cases it is. So I consider myself a backyard beekeeper. What I do for the bees is entirely for their own benefit. I'm treating for mites. I'm doing mite counts. I'm looking for pathogens and looking to help them. And I actually do not collect honey from them.
1: You don't? Okay.
0: I do not collect honey because they need it for our long winters here. Humans have cultivated and worked with bees for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. There's thousand-year-old cave paintings in Spain, some of the earliest markings that humans were keeping bees. And then we think of how domestication works with dogs and with animals and any creature we can domesticate. We try to breed them or to make them this way or that way. So I find it fascinating that honeybees are still so wild after so many thousands of years of of us working with them. <laughs> it's, it's truly fascinating. That is what drives me to them. How much can I manipulate in the hive? And then how much are they manipulating me when I'm doing things? Because when they react one way, they're training me to go in opposite direction. It's super fascinating.
1: Oh, wow. You shared with me some news you received recently from your alma mater, which is MassArt, I believe, right?
0: They have a new sustainability minor at the college, and they asked me to answer some questions about sustainability in my practice. And so I was interviewed for their new blog series. Hmm.
1: And first of all, for those who don't know, MassArt, it's a four-year art school in Boston.
0: And actually, I do want to say, very proud of this It is the only publicly funded art college in the nation. Oh, wow. So very super proud. (laughs) There should be more of them.
1: The email that you shared with me about that was uh, your manifesto.
0: Right. Yeah. I didn't know it was my manifesto until I wrote it. And then I kept referencing it to other people who were asking me. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to send you this article Yes, this is my manifesto on how to be sustainable, the only way that this planet will survive. There's so many overlays between that and the Earth as an Island project.
1: What are some highlights?
0: I really do believe that working together is what we need.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely.
0: So we need to look at the beehive, for example, it's the super organism of bees that work together for their own common good. And this idea of cooperation between groups of people, even with varied backgrounds and ideals, I truly believe that togetherness will save the planet and be the solution that we need. (laughs) So with the bee metaphor as a unit, the individual bees cannot survive alone. So if we have a queen bee on her own, she can't do anything. She holds all the power in the hive, but when she's a single unit, Mm a hundred percent fatality, no way for her to survive. And so, when we think of honeybees working together and having this hierarchical approach, they can solve complex problems. And I think that's something we can learn from.
1: Wonderful. <laughs> I agree. The sum is always greater than the parts.
0: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I also feel like for sustainability, we need to get beyond this throwaway culture, right? So it's single use. I just think about our grandparents. I mean, they had very early renditions of plastics mm-hmm. they were just being created, but they weren't throwing away utensils every time they went to sweet green.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Because if we keep just buying and using and throwing away, it takes such a toll. Mm-hmm. Um, I truly think that when artists get together, artists who are makers, mm-hmm. they are the ones who have the stored potential inside of them to Transform, mend, rescue, and recuperate old and worn things and just breathe new life into them. So, I truly believe that reuse can be seen as a type of protest to our throwaway culture.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm certainly hoping as well that instead of the planned obsolescence, it's the planned recycling. Where instead of the life cycle being where it's thrown away and landfilled, like the batteries for electric cars and things like that, they're now thinking instead of throwing them away, it goes back because they can reclaim the heavy metals out of it. I know that they're getting closer and closer to being able to figure out how to do that sustainably and economically. That's always our driving factor, it seems like.
0: It sounds so great. Like, it sounds so awesome. Like, oh, I got this bottle, but it's made out of plastic and someone's going to recycle it and they're going to turn it into something cool. And it sounds so great and it feels super like positive. Yeah. But when you look at the numbers of what is actually being recycled, it's such a small percentage. And we have to really, A, find a solution to use all that plastic and reuse it, but also just cut down, really. It's also a huge culture shift. So when I think of stories that my grandmother mentioned, she was telling me about how during World War II, there was a nylon shortage. And so they had to ration how much nylon they were using and could not use it for hosiery. It became an acceptable norm for women to just paint a line up their legs to sort of mimic the style of seamed nylon pantyhose. And I just think with these creative solutions, we can really collectively decide, okay, this is socially acceptable. We're going to consume less and this is OK.
1: Oh, my gosh. And we just got to get business people on board with it, which I think I think is coming. I think it's coming.
0: Oh, absolutely. I'm so sick of the <laughs> this concept of like it's the consumer's fault. Mm-hmm. If all we're offered is this buffet of non-reusable stuff, we're out of options.
1: Henry Ford was an innovator in his time and he said when he was developing the automobile, That if he went and talked to his customers, they would just want a faster horse and buggy. So he's the one who innovated and actually created the assembly line, which was great for the industrial revolution. The next revolution, I think, needs to happen where somebody says, well, they just wanted a better plastic bottle. No, I'm going to come up with something revolutionary again. And instead of the plastic bottle, we have the Yetis or whatever.
0: I mean, imagine if we all just carried around like a keychain bottle. And and if you didn't have one, mm. it was like, oh, you don't have <laughs> the keychain bottle. <laughs> and that's just the way the culture is to make these cultural changes are, are really important.
1: That'd be awesome. The cultural changes are happening. It's certainly in the New England area. I'm seeing it in the more urban areas. I'm not sure how it's translating. I have a friend who's out in Ohio and their views on change are very different
0: it's kind of scary honestly i feel like i'm preaching to the choir even right now i mean i feel like people listening to your podcast they're going to be thinking like Mm. oh you know this is all about sustainability and i care about this and i care about nature and we're talking about things that they already know and they're already recycling and doing all these things it's shocking to me how many people just think the earth is in trouble no matter what and it doesn't matter what i do it's such a small thing a small gesture
1: I actually had that mindset for a long time. It was like, I feel useless. I don't think I can do anything. Um, and then I did little things. And yes, you know, I know that a lot of the stuff I'm recycling is is still going to the landfill. Right. Because of getting contaminated along the path. But I'm doing that one little thing. And if everyone does one little thing, one person picks up a piece of trash and puts it in the proper receptacle. Another person will see that. And do that. And then another person will see it. And it's going to be those increments that's going to get us there. There, There's no magic bullet. There never has been for anything.
0: It's really important to just remember, like, we're never alone on this path to sustainability. It really is like the honeybees working Mm -hmm. together, working in numbers and making these small changes because these small changes over time can really change the
1: direction of, of, of a route. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. I'm going to use that one totally. <laughs> I was thinking about this when I was reading about your Earth is an Island project, that you're looking at the future through the past. Do you have an hopeful outlook?
0: I absolutely do. I have an extremely positive outlook on how things can be solved for Earth is an Island. I was looking at things through hmm. a lens of of just what cooperation could do for this planet, of what, how amazing it is that we even have this planet to begin with. Also with the beekeeping project, Bees in Italy, I was dealing with honeybee deaths and these neonicotinoids poisoning the land and all these problems. But I really wanted to show this golden age of beekeeping that I think that is attainable. So instead of looking at, oh, this is bad, look at this. I kind of want to show, look what's possible.
1: Absolutely. If you could go back and tell yourself one thing. From where you are right now in your career, looking back into the past, some key crossroad in your life, what would that crossroad be and what would you have told yourself?
0: I think that I would like to have told myself at a younger age that it's okay to take risks (laughs) and that being different is a strength. I remember as a kid feeling like I'm too old to, to try that. I'm too old to learn how to play guitar because kids learned how to play the guitar when they were 10 and I'm 14 now. So, you know, I'm so behind and I really wish I could go back and just be like, listen, you're going to be in your thirties and trying Pilates for the first time. or trying so many, you know, going on your first track and having it be Mount Everest. You know what I mean? <laughs> I have so much respect for people who A, do what they want and also, Respect for people who at any age will pick something up and try it. People who change the trajectory of their life. Mm. I have so much respect for people who are constantly learning. And so it's incredibly powerful to just listen to your inner voice and listen to what is exciting you and to go with it. That's what I would tell myself.
1: Mm a theme that keeps on coming up in the show whenever I'm talking with someone about exactly this is follow your curiosity. And it seems like everyone I've talked to about it just always ends up being amazed at what they've accomplished and they can't wait to see what they're curious about next. That's awesome. Right. Right. What do you think your legacy is going to be?
0: I would say just a legacy of bringing sustainability to the forefront to resonate with people to kind of come out of their inspire people to to be their true authentic
1: selves it sounds like you're looking for change you want your legacy to be about change in a positive direction
0: absolutely i would love to give people knowledge so i would love to inspire them to create changes in the world and inspire them to to be makers and to do things and to follow their curiosity and see what rabbit hole it brings them down
1: what is your comfort food at the end of the day
0: My absolute comfort food is chicken and waffles. I don't usually have it at the end of the day because I don't make it myself at home, but I have a blog, a chicken and waffle blog. I absolutely love the crunchiness of fried chicken mixed with the fluffiness of a buttery waffle with some syrup and the sweetness with the tanginess of maybe some buffalo sauce. I absolutely comfort food. One hundred percent chicken and waffles. Mm -hmm. My favorite
1: chicken and waffles thank you renee thanks for checking in with cherry bomb the podcast the companion piece to sweet blast which can be found at the art of renee richardy can be found at renee richardy.com or on instagram at renee underscore richardy Be sure to subscribe and review Cherry Bomb the podcast in your favorite app. Share it to your Facebook feed or on Twitter. If you have questions, suggestions, or comments, feel free to drop me a line at matt at mckeephotography.com. Cherry Bomb the podcast is produced by me with consulting help from Suzanne Schultz and Canvas Fine Arts and is edited by Bill Chamlian at Orb Audio. Thanks for listening, and let's start the conversation. Just a really quick note before your auto-feed refreshes to the next episode in your queue. If you've enjoyed the show, maybe picked up a new tip or a concept, there are a couple ways you can help us keep creating it. Click on the link at the bottom of the show notes for buymeacoffee.com slash McKee. Coffee is life around here. Also in the show notes is a link to theartofmattmckee.com where you can browse art from my Sweet Blast, Promethean Dreams, and Tools series of portfolios, as well as others get some art for that special someone in your life and if that special someone is you don't feel guilty it should go without saying you deserve nice things too and last but certainly not least share this episode with your friends on social media let them know you enjoyed it and then you can start your own conversation